0: I was hanging out with PhD students, and I was talking to the guy who, who brought me there, who, by the way, is also a podcast listener,
1: oh,
2: and nice.
0: who's, who's from Canada, and so we're both from similar societies in terms of religion and tradition and, and hierarchies. It's so strange here because there are so many codes and, and, you know, hints that you have to pick up on in order to to get the whole Cambridge thing. It takes right. a lot and religion is everywhere or at least uh, like chapels and churches are everywhere. I don't know to what extent people are actually practicing religion, but it's so present here for historical reasons.
1: Does it make you uncomfortable?
0: A little bit. Yeah, I think you would be better at this.
1: Yeah, I, I see it as, I mean, I, I like the other like I really relish in the other even if I find it like completely insane like I have this like extreme desire to just go to a Scientology center and study it for a year just oh, to yeah, see I, I, really. yeah, hold back
0: now on your analogies here <laughs> <It's> still, <laughs> right. I'm talking about a bunch of chapels in Cambridge and <laughs> like a cult
1: <laughs> well tomato tomato
0: yeah perhaps but it's interesting uh, and I, I enjoy it I, I can't uh, you know, stop myself from thinking what well, what kind of lawyer would I have been if I did all my studies here in like this kind of environment. It's also so maybe it's the egalitarian, like, socialist Scandinavian part of me, but it's it's so layered here that the everything is just set up so that people like me could do exactly what I want to do. I just research, right. So there's always, you know, you're always being told uh, implicitly or just to your face that you're part of this privileged elite. And then there's a bunch of other people running around, like taking care of your food and, you know, making sure you can do only research. And that's strange for me. It's, it's a luxury, but it's, uh, I don't know, the classes, the class society that's so present here.
1: Yeah, I, it's a sliding doors moment. I still have that, I still have anxiety about my decision of which college I went to and which law school I went to like why didn't I go to Saint Albans when I was 18? You know, like those type yeah. of questions. Yeah, yeah. Where it's like I would have loved it. I actually, I mean, I wanted to go to boarding school since I was like nine. My mom was like, "You need to go to a therapist if that's what you're requesting." <laughs> but
0: um, that's good. Good of her though. And I, I mean, you turned out fine. Look at you. You're like what 31. You have your own podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I bet my mom leaves that one out at the uh, <laughs> book clubs that she goes to.
0: So anyway, episode two of season two, how how does it feel, Brian?
1: It feels good. I feel like we're trucking along, got some episodes in the pipeline. We got some new ideas. People are interested.
0: And I'm so excited about this episode. I, there's a risk. I don't know what, what, what you think about this. You, you'll have to chime in, but because you are the practitioner and I'm the academic, I've been looking forward so much to speaking to Taylor St. John about the history of, of ISDS that she has written her doctoral dissertation on and now has a book out on. And I've been waiting basically since we started this podcast. Uh, and I I just simply think it's a, such an interesting topic and she's such an interesting person and we had a very good conversation i'm a little bit afraid that people who are primarily interested in practice are going to zone out but then
1: no i've i got a little sneak peek of the interview and i definitely did not zone out i think it's extremely interesting she talks very similarly to our friend who did the uh cost arbitration episode uh oh that's right kendra yeah they they sound similar
0: Yeah, they have this uh, educated, uh, liberal American talk talk radio thing.
1: (laughs) It's true. It's it's calming and authoritative and assuring at the same time. It feels like
0: there should be some sort of smooth jazz before and then like back and NPR, Minnesota.
1: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, But I think it is, besides the fact that she has an amazing name as well, and that this would be the perfect Joel Christmas present, I think that the book is extremely interesting, and she's done an insane amount of research. How long has she been working on it?
0: Um, I met her for the first time in 2014, I think, and at that point, she was more or less done with the book. Oh, wow. <laughs> in manuscript form. And I think she defended, maybe 2015, she defended the, the uh, dissertation, so she's been waiting a few years, like revising and adding uh, more ar- archival work as well. So. Yeah, forever basically yeah and the beauty of
1: this is that she's not even a like a lawyer i mean before our listeners jump off a cliff because the person's not a lawyer she's a political scientist right
0: yeah that's right i actually have this plan i haven't told you about it to bring in more non-lawyers on the podcast and and add perspectives on this fishbowl of ours
1: And then we will be taking just a quick short flight over to Helsinki, Finland, where we will be interviewing Anna Maria Tamanen, who is a partner at Hannah Snellman, a law firm based out of Finland. She has a very interesting background because she kind of straddles the Stockholm and Helsinki market. So we're doing, you know, a, a nice short jump for our listeners before we go into the more exotic locations. And Anna Maria has been working with Hannah Snellman for quite a long time. She was working as a senior associate before she came a managing associate and then partner. Um, She started back in 2011. But before that, she was working as a foreign associate at Wilmer Hale based in London. So she does have like an international experience, which she kind of uses in the interview to contrast the Nordic market and what she wants to see in the future.
0: And then we, of course, customarily have a happy, fun time.
1: Yes, and this one I'm actually very passionate about, and it's called traveling with colleagues and Is traveling this a while you work. Too,
0: too much information, kind of segment. Why are you so so passionate about talking about this particular subject?
1: I don't know, because I think I have a very unique view on it. Uh, that not pop, a lot of people pop, take pop, 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 a very unique.
2: <laughs>
1: oh, bring up my red pen again. Committing suicide in five, four. <laughs> uh, I have what a unique. Oh, maybe we should
0: get that down the line when we're actually talking about happy fun (laughs) time all right we should just push play and and move ahead with taylor st john in a conversation with me in copenhagen and i must also say that we were in in the office of ginesh univar who was hosting the conference and he was very generous in giving us some space and time but the only condition was that we mentioned his name on the podcast so now i've done that and we could move on all right So we had to go to, to Copenhagen to finally do this. I emailed you, what, six months ago asking you to come on the podcast, and we haven't been able until now yeah. in a city in which neither of us actually lives.
3: Yes. Yeah. So I'm a, a loyal listener and a first-time caller in the American talk radio lingo.
0: I told you yesterday uh, that you have a very good American talk radio voice. You sound like the perfect academic, which is also the reason I wanted to interview <laughs> you. Optimal for, for the radio format. You're also a very good scholar with with a a major S, and in the interest of full disclosure, you are not a lawyer. So you might also be the first non-lawyer that is on this very legal podcast.
3: It's it's an honor.
0: (laughs) So what are you, for those who don't know that there are people out there who aren't lawyers?
3: So I am a political scientist, uh, and in the subfield is international political economy. And I got interested in arbitration by way of the World Bank. So I was looking at the history of the World Bank, and I was looking at the 1960s, and all of a sudden I came across this thing called Ixod. And I thought, how what, how on earth did they do this? Why did they do this? Um, and and politically, how was it possible to create Ixod? And that was sort of late one Friday night, 10 or 11 years ago.
0: And at that stage, I would imagine there wasn't really a lot of scholarship addressing those type of questions?
3: No. So we didn't have um, the PARA book, we didn't have Paulson or other kind of political economy scholars uh, looking at arbitration. It was really sort of Christoph Schreuer and more practice-focused um, pieces on arbitration.
0: And then we don't have to cover the, the 10 years from from then until now, just recently when your PhD dissertation was finally Published, but that, that was the end product of, of what started some 10, 11 years ago.
3: Yeah, yeah. So it's um, it's basically the UKOS arbitration, except with unbelievably low stakes. Um, and I, I hope if the Russian forensic linguists were to look at it, they would find that I wrote all of it. Um, <laughs> but it is... It is a book that's coming out in about two weeks called The Rise of Investors in Arbitration, Politics, Law, and Unintended Consequences. And what I really wanted to do was to take it from the point of view of officials in the 1950s and 1960s and 1970s. And with the information that they had and facing the world that they faced, why did they make the decisions that ultimately constructed the architecture for... Not just arbitration, but treaty arbitration.
0: And the thousands of people who are now working very hard and making good, good, decent amount of money in this system. So essentially the people we have to thank for the system.
3: Yeah. So who are the founding fathers of investment treaty arbitration? And what were they thinking?
0: It's a very good setup. And for once... I normally prepare about for 15 minutes. now I haven't even prepared at all because you flagged that you, you come here with, with a structure and a manuscript and maybe even a few notes.
3: <laughs> Just a few notes. Uh, so I thought maybe a good way to get across some of the information in the book is to talk about founding myths of investor state arbitration. And I think the term "founding myths" is important or is useful because nations have founding myths, companies have founding myths, and they can be benign, but they can also be evaluated empirically. And so I think I I want to discuss a few of these myths that I I think arbitration practitioners and probably some arbitration station listeners are. These are received wisdoms. These are sort of things that are taught in investment law 101, and we carry on each day believing them. And Probably
0: things that I've taught myself.
3: Yeah. And so I think we can use this discussion to, to sort of, all right, everybody, let's stop and let's, let's evaluate some of, these, some of these founding myths. Um, and well, I've tried to... What are some of those? So I want to start with... I think I want to go ahead and start right in the middle of what I prepared, um, which is the myth of additional investment. Right? So this is one of the core justifications for why we have investors to arbitration. And it's the idea, which will probably be familiar to many of your, your listeners, that providing investors with access to arbitration will remove the impediments that currently prevent capital from flowing where it can be most effective. And those are, of course, not my words. Those are the words of the World Bank General Council in the 1960s, a man named Aaron Brockes, who some listeners will know is the father of ICSID and arguably... I will argue, the father of investment treaty arbitration. Um, So he makes this link between arbitration and more investment. And of course, as your more academic listeners will know, we've had dozens of studies trying to see what is the relationship between arbitration or between treaties and between additional investment. And those studies come to all sorts of different results, right? Very inconclusive. And so I wanted to look at another type of evidence, so what I've done is I've gone into the archives and tried to see what were officials in the German government, in the British government, in the American government thinking as they signed the ICSID convention and as they drafted their investment treaties. Were they expecting additional investment? And what do you think the answer is, Joel? Uh,
0: no, probably not to the extent that it was even possible. But I guess you were about to, to tell me. They were probably working under the assumption that they would have investment anyway, and the procedural protections that were granted by the ICSID Convention, their only procedural is sort of an added layer on top of, of things. I don't think it was important to them, actually. And if, if it was, we will see. <laughs> when I get here, it's going to be right a answer. big
3: reveal. <laughs> uh,
0: at that stage, it could not have been anything more than just assumptions. Because then they probably knew way, way less than we know now. Now, at least, we are
3: uh, ignorant on a much higher level than in the 50s <laughs> yes. and 60s. We're ignorant with much better statistics yeah, exactly. than we were back then. Um, yeah, so you brought up a couple really interesting things. The first thing is a lot of states assumed that the World Bank had done impact studies because the World Bank sort of gave this impression very gently that I arbitration. Just ask you,
0: in this case, the World Bank is. Aaron is basically, or are there other parts of the World Bank that are also active in this process before there's an exit?
3: It's the World Bank legal department. And so Aaron Brockes is the head. But there are also some other lawyers that uh, people may have come across, Georges Delam or Paul Tzaz. Um, So there are a couple other figures, but it's mainly... This is mainly a one-man show at this point in time. Uh, But he's quite a man, as as we'll we'll learn. Um, So British officials have this amazing quote... When this is the first meeting of the Ixit Administrative Council, and these are their internal drafting notes, and they write to one another: quote, We do not expect the existence of the center to give any major stimulus to new investment. Um, and British officials say that many, many times to each other in many different fora over many different years. So new investment is not only is it not expected. Because ICSID will not facilitate investment, this is one of the reasons why the British government prefers it to other solutions. Uh, And then my favorite piece of evidence on the sort of additional investment story is American investment treaties. So Joel is smiling uh, because in the academic literature, there's this persistent belief that, all right, so maybe not all investment treaties facilitate investment. But American treaties definitely facilitate investment. And this is a view that has mainly been put forward by American law professors. It's Um, the American
0: exceptionalism. (laughs) It is. Yet another (laughs) version.
3: (laughs) It is American exceptionalism in another guise. And none of these studies have ever gone back and looked at what American officials were thinking as they drafted the very first American investment treaties.
0: I'm guessing you did.
3: I did. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Um, I have gone back and looked. And during those initial discussions and publications, American officials go out of their way to emphasize that these treaties will not promote investment. And they do so because this is the 1970s. This is the late Carter administration. And the Carter administration was terrified that organized labor would oppose treaties that promoted outward investment. And the official U.S. government policy is what they call investment neutrality. So that means the U.S. government will not be encouraging investment outflows. And so they say, our policy is investment neutrality, but, quote, these bilateral treaties will not constitute a departure from the investment neutrality we seek. The bilaterals entered into by the Europeans do not require the parties to take specific actions to promote investment. So the Americans, and there are many more quotes like that that show the Americans look at what the Europeans are doing and say, well, that doesn't promote investment. And we don't want to promote investment. So let's sign bits and not promote investment.
0: And this, and the Americans were later than the European states in, in their bit programs, right?
3: Yes. And actually, this is one more way we can take down American exceptionalism. Uh, so the Americans, for a while, sort of... Uh, say publicly that they favor a multilateral solution, so they're very slow to the BIT movement. But they look at what the Germans and the Swiss primarily, and and others later, are doing, uh, and they say that seems to be working in sort of spreading the type of investment law standards that we would like. So we can get in these bilateral treaties higher standards, more protection for our investors than we can in a multilateral setting. So, the American government says, and this is around 1977, Let's negotiate bits. And the first thing that the Americans do is they go and interview the Germans and the Swiss and the British, and they say, teach us. And that's another part of the story that I feel like people haven't really discussed. The Americans are learning from the Europeans when it comes to investment treaties.
0: Yeah. And also, uh, I guess you didn't look at this, but I would imagine that uh, you, you can see this reflected in the treaties as well, that the, the first American investment treaties are relatively similar to the, the, the earlier European versions.
3: Yeah, so I should add, the American government does go and they learn from the Europeans, but they also bring all this information home and they really draft carefully. And there are a lot of um, inter-ministerial, well, kind of State Department, USTR, there are a lot of consultations going on to refine that draft um, in these early treaties with kind of Panama and Egypt. Are we ready for another myth?
0: Yes, please, bring on the myths.
3: So this one is sort of related. Um, It is the myth that investors cared at least initially, uh, I know many listeners will say, "No, no, 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 I've got clients, and they really do care. trust me, uh, and I do trust you. Uh, but early on, I'm not so sure that many private firms understood investment arbitration, particularly investment treaty arbitration, nor that they cared.
0: Um, so and where are we in the in sort of the early on?
3: Yeah, so we have a couple pieces of evidence here that I'm excited about. Uh, So German investors were surveyed in 1962 by the ICC, the International Chamber of Commerce, um, surveys investors in a lot of different countries. And we know this from records in the German government because the German government says, no German investors think that investment arbitration matters. No one cares. So we're not going to do this. And globally, of the ICC's respondents, around 16% thought that arbitration might affect the investment climate.
0: But at this point, this was hypothetical. There weren't any arbitration clauses yet. So this was sort of a, if we were to introduce this, would you care? It was not, do you care about what we already have? Because there was nothing in terms of investor state clauses.
3: Yes. So there are no investor state clauses, but we should expect in the 1960s that a lot of large firms are familiar with the sorts of arbitrations that were happening at the ICC. So the ICC and the PCA actually could do investor-to-state arbitrations coming out of contracts. And the PCA, uh, some of your listeners will smile at this, as early as the 1950s, the PCA is releasing memos and pamphlets advertising themselves for investor state arbitrations.
0: I didn't know this. Yeah. I, I've already advertised that I'm considering a postdoc on, on the PCA's evolving role. This is a very interesting piece of information that they were yeah. they were very early, okay.
3: And they send it to the British government. And then the British government sends that to the World Bank during the drafting of the exit Convention and says, We don't need exit. The PCA can do this. They've told us. That's and a sliding doors moment. And Braca says no. Prakas wants to do what he wants to do. Exodus the shit, <laughs> That's what he says. But he also says, and I think this is important, uh, the PCA will be seen as a European creation, and it's 1960s, right? Countries are independent for the first time. They're no longer colonies, and the World Bank is seen as a sort of post-World War II institution. It's not seen as a neocolonial institution. And so we will be able to get these poor countries to agree to investor arbitration in a way that the PCA, which is a European creation, cannot. So that's Brockus's formal answer. But I think his informal answer is, don't you dare steal yeah. <laughs> my idea. <laughs> um, but getting back to the myth that investors cared, I have one more thing that I, I love. Uh, so in 1976, a couple of academics surveyed top legal counsel within Fortune 1000 firms. So this is in the U.S., American firms. And they survey legal counsel and they say, have you heard of ICSID? Do you know about investment treaty arbitration? And if you had to hazard a guess, what percentage do you think of um, of legal counsel in the largest American multinational firms knew about ICSID 10 or 15 years after it was created?
0: It's it's not even double-digit. I would imagine it's like a, a few percentage points at, at the at the most.
3: That was maybe a leading question. It's 15%, <laughs> so now that seems... <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's not very many. No, 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 still. Right? Yeah. When we think about the, the sort of rights that they had been granted... They didn't know, and they didn't care. And that's true for a very, very long time.
0: Would you say, just based on your research, and if it's even possible, if this is an accurate reflection in other states as well? Because I'm guessing the U.S. firms in particular would be maybe the most because of, because of uh, being in the U.S. and, and yeah. uh, the general program that was taking place in the U.S. at the time.
3: I don't know. I haven't seen... I don't have good evidence of that. Yeah, you you would not (laughs) guess
0: with that data. (laughs)
3: Uh, Yeah, so I I can't guess on on that. Um, But what I can tell you is that officials within ICSID, so Paracas, Delamme, the same sort of core group, for decades, they lament how little investors care about ICSID. And it's sort of heartbreaking to see in some of these early ICSID annual reports, there are quotes like, well, ICSID is still not sufficiently known by the investing community, And then Brockes and Delam give these wonderful oral histories much later. And Delam sort of blames Brockes for Ixid not being known among the investing community. And Brockes sort of takes the blame and says, well, I'm a public international lawyer. I just wasn't very good at reaching investors.
0: What he did then, I guess, is he reached out to states instead and went through the the states.
3: Yes. Yes. So this is what's really interesting, because we see that the World Bank is leading... And the World Bank is an international organization. It's public. And Brockes is fantastic at reaching government lawyers. And he can get government lawyers to insert access arbitration into treaties, into their domestic law, into all sorts of places. But he's much less successful at getting investors to care.
0: So the government lawyers are essentially his peers, and the World Bank at this time doesn't have the... Western connotation that it would start to get maybe in the 1990s, that it's such like a, a club for rich countries to complicate things for poor countries.
3: Yes. Yeah. So the World Bank had been involved in some mediations. And so it was seen as a trusted broker between wealthy countries, between the lenders of money and the borrowers of money. Of poor countries and it was very successful in some of these 1950s mediation so the world bank had a lot of goodwill and i think it was a period of much more optimism um, about sort of cooperation so yeah all right i have another myth <laughs> i'm so excited about this one too um, the myth of arbitration replacing politics
0: oh the depoliticization yes
3: myth. yeah i mean i hate the word depoliticization but that's what we're talking about So it's since the late 1960s, right, that investors state arbitration has been celebrated as a move away from politics. And I think this is important because it's something that we sort of take for granted. Oh, arbitration would always be associated with a move away from politics. But that's not so. It's a sort of rebranding. Of arbitration in many ways, and it occurs with Bracca's in the World Bank in the 1960s, um, and it really gets worse or better depending on your point of view, with Bracca's successor at um, as ICSID Secretary General Ibrahim Shihata, who describes ICSID and really sort of markets it as um, a forum that will depoliticize investment disputes, and depoliticization has a specific legal meaning in the ICSID Convention. But I think in the way that it's taught in law classes, it also has the sort of wider, looser connotation of a legal procedure, sort of beautiful stainless steel courtroom rules. rules. rules
0: that are legal certainty and predictable and and cold precision rather than vague diplomacy and politics.
3: Right, and power. Yeah. Right? War, conflict, power, all these bad... One phrase
0: that I've heard at, at this point probably by... 10 arbitrators in the sort of senior layer of the arbitration community is uh, gunboat diplomacy, that the, the the alternative was, and maybe still even is, if we give up arbitration, uh, gunboat diplomacy, i.e. diplomacy by, by way of violence, essentially. Do you know... Where this phrase comes from, or can you trace it back in time, or am I
3: putting you now on the on the stand? <laughs> so well, I, I don't know the exact origins of the term, but what I do think is interesting is in sort of the marketing of investors at arbitration, arbitration is opposed to gunboat diplomacy, as though these two things can never exist at the same time. But historically what we see, right, taking maybe the most famous example in Venezuela in 1903 of gunboat diplomacy, the gunboats are used to bring Venezuela to arbitration. So they work in tandem, and we see that that's still the case. So arbitration does not replace other means of resolving disputes. And I think you might get calls from your listeners saying, yes, it does, yes, it does, (laughs) but hear me out. Arbitration can work alongside things like insurance or government mediation or a show of force. Um, And that's very much how German and Swiss officials are thinking about it, in fact, as they draft the first BITs. So there's this uh, wonderful article in the German trade press that comes out, I don't know, 1959, to kind of celebrate the first German bit. And it has some, some quotes that say, let me see here, let me find them. Um, they say, well, in some instances, our investors will have access to arbitration. In some instances, our investors can use insurance. And in other instances, we actually probably need the full weight of the German government behind our investors. So now we've just got options. And so there's a view um, that we're just creating more tools in the armory for the protection of investment. And that's not my phrase, that's, that's someone else's from a long time ago, but it's, it's a different way of thinking about it. Arbitration does not necessarily replace other means. Arbitration does not replace power or politics. It simply adds to the tools. Um, and they can operate in in a lot of the same disputes.
0: It's interesting that at that time, that was going on in the heads of the people drafting bits. History aside, I think today, this statement that arbitration depoliticizes or removes political pressure, obviously does not work at all, given the discussions we're having. We're in Copenhagen right now to to talk about the the various proposals trying to, to reform the regime, and now it's it's more of a political game than than anything else <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah and i think uh, another thing i i would emphasize and this will be kind of bread and butter to many of your listeners but a lot of the everyday work of economic attachés at embassies or people within foreign ministries or the State Department, is actually resolving disputes or problems that investors have as they arise in other countries. And that's how a lot of these ministries or, or sections within ministries or embassies or justify budget. Uh, so a colleague of mine, Jeff Gertz, has looked into how the U.S. State Department has continued to kind of use relatively low-level officials to try to sort out disputes before they become arbitration claims.
0: In present times or historically, Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah right and and that makes sense. That's sort of the everyday work of government. Um,
0: yeah, there are a, a bunch of steps that we typically don't see before there's a request for arbitration. It can be years of of informal discussions and negotiations with various ministries and private entities as well.
3: Yeah, so I think governments home governments are often very involved or or can be involved, and that of course, varies with the home government, with the circumstance on a lot of different things. Uh, But we should never imagine that just because investors have access to arbitration, the home government is somehow out of the picture. I think that's a a false image of of what reality looks like today.
0: So in your research, so far chronologically, we haven't moved into the 1980s where where the cases start to happen. Do you you stop (laughs) at that point because you're mostly interested in the foundational myth? Or do you also, did you look at at, uh, archives from what happens at Exit when they finally get cases and they are more than just a promotion agency and actually start administering arbitrations?
3: I do. I don't look very much at cases, but I do want to talk about a trio of some of the first Exit cases. And these are the first Exit cases that involve U.S. firms. And it's U.S. firms in Jamaica, and these are in the 1970s. And I don't really want to talk so much about the cases, because that's handled uh, by people who are more competent than I am at that. But I want to talk about the the sort of social and political context of these cases. Um, so in 1972, there's this beautiful, but also very charismatic and smart, uh, Jamaican prime minister who's elected. And... He is trying to build the Jamaican state, so he needs money for sort of schools and roads and all these different things. And so he announces a new, I think, an extra 7% tax on bauxite mining. And the mines in Jamaica are owned by six companies, and I think most of them are American. One, one or two might be Canadian. And these mines, these mine owners, Alcoa is one of them, are sort of not having it. They want the arrangements as they were. And the U.S. government at the time, this is under Kissinger, and Kissinger comes back in the story. Uh,
0: Not not as president, we should mention for the non-U.S. listeners. It's not a (laughs) secret, (laughs) unknown U.S. president. He was Secretary of State, presumably.
3: He was Secretary of State, yes. Uh, So Kissinger is in the State Department, and he's looking at this situation in Jamaica. And he doesn't want this charismatic, beautiful prime minister, whose name is Michael Manley, to become the next Castro. And so the U.S. government was seen by both the Jamaican government and by Alcoa and these other companies as the mediator, as the sort of trusted intermediary. And in Kingston, the capital of Jamaica, the U.S. embassy is very actively mediating uh, between the two parties. And what Kissinger calls the conclave of CEOs of these um, aluminum aluminum company CEOs is meeting in Washington at the same time. And the U.S. government is from all accounts, doing quite a competent job. And the U.S. government thinks that the Jamaican government has done its homework and that the Jamaican government is willing to put good offers on the table. So it is as these mediations are ongoing, as the investors are very well informed by the American government of what is happening, that three of the companies, led by quite an aggressive Washington-based lawyer, file at ICSID. And they don't file at Ixid with any intention of resolving the dispute on the legal plane, right, as we've been taught. They file these cases in order to sort of ratchet up the pressure on Jamaica and extract a better settlement. Get
0: some leverage, essentially.
3: Right, get some leverage. And the U.S. government is furious, right? They are so angry at Alcoa. And so Kissinger and others at the State Department write these Fantastic cables, where they say, "Oh, Alcoa, determined to go down in flames!" Right? Alcoa is going to make Jamaica communist, and they cannot stand it. And so, eventually,
0: can I just ask you? This is not under a treaty. This is uh, the these arbitration are contract is, is cases. contractual. Yeah.
3: So it's yeah. not that the U.S. had an investment treaty with Jamaica. No, the the access to exit is written into these contracts. Yeah. So it's. It's in the middle of all of this um, that the U.S. government says, please make these exit cases go away. Let's just resolve this in the negotiations. And so that's what happens. Uh, the cases are discontinued at IXID, and eventually the U.S. government sort of gets control again of its mediations, and a settlement agreement is worked out. But that's very different, right, from the way that we're taught to view exit cases, at least kind of classically. I think those of you that work in practice know that things, um, things get a little messy <laughs> from time to time in some of these cases. Um, but it was always so. It wasn't as though there was this golden period of arbitrations.
0: Was These were the very first exit cases?
3: Uh, I no, I think there are a one or two that happened before them.
0: It's okay, but and um, so they were This is the first concluded. time
3: that exit is mentioned in the Wall Street Journal, <laughs> if that's what you're interested in. <laughs>
0: Yeah, of course, because you went through all the Wall Street Journal archives <laughs> <I know.
3: laughs> Well, it's been a riveting 10 years. <laughs> um, can I talk about one more thing? This yes. Is very important to me. Oh, yeah, then um, of course. Then
0: we get it. one more thing uh, exactly, we, I think, is what we have time that for. we get
3: out. Um, so I want to talk about Aaron Brockes and Herman Yosef Because these are two men that any person that's had Investment Law 101 will have sort of heard of or heard of what they did. But they may not—they um, may not know the intense personal history uh, of both of these two men.
0: Oh yeah, I love this story.
3: Uh, yeah. So Abbs is the chairman of the Deutsche Bank uh, from sort of the late well 1950s, and then he's he's involved in 1994 when he dies with Deutsche Bank. He's advisor to Konrad Adenauer, who's the chancellor of Germany for a very long time. And he coordinates the drafting of the ICS, of the ABS draft, which becomes the ABS-Shakras, and subsequently the OECD draft. And that is, of course, what many people view as the, the core text on which bilateral investment treaties are drafted.
0: Substantive standards yes. as well, right?
3: Absolutely. Substantive standards. Uh, and he's also involved with the German bit, the, the world's very first bilateral investment treaty. So he's fundamental to the story. And Brock is, right, has already come up. He's the World Bank General Counsel. He leads, almost single-handedly, the drafting of the ICSID convention, then he introduces the convention to states, he cajoles them into ratifying, and he also oversees the drafting of clauses that show states how to insert arbitration into their investment treaties. And then he travels the world for decades, encouraging governments to include arbitration in their treaties. So we have investment treaty arbitration because of him, in a sense. And Bruckes is remembered for this, right? He's remembered as a good procedural lawyer. But I think we should also remember that he is an outstanding diplomat, and he's incredibly compelling when he explains the logic of arbitration. So there are these wonderful notes from British officials where they walk into a meeting and they disagree with him, and they walk out, and the notes just say, Ronnie the charming and charismatic general counsel has convinced us to reverse our position, right? He's just that good, right? And he's hugely persistent. Um, So he worked on this for decades. And so something that I wondered for a long time was, what is it that drives this man? Why is he working so hard on this? And I eventually found out. Well, I think I found out. Um, Bracques grew up in Amsterdam. So he completes a doctorate in international law at the University of Amsterdam in the 1930s. And in 1938, he secures a visa to do an LLM in the U.S. And the rest of his family in the next seven years, so his brother, sister, mother, father, I think more relations, are killed in the Holocaust. And before that, the family-owned factory, which was Bracke's cigarettes, was expropriated during the German expropriation of the Netherlands. So Bracke's goes back in 1945 to try and kind of sort out his family's property. And at the same time, Hermann Abbs, for those same months, Hermann Abbs is under house arrest, waiting to be tried as a war criminal at the Nuremberg Trials. So Hermann Abbs had been in charge of Deutsche Bank's foreign operations throughout World War II. He's extensively involved, we know today, in the expropriation of Jewish owned property.
0: He was the expropriator. He was. And Roklis was on the other side yes. of that. State.
3: absolutely. And I can't verify this for certain, but I am pretty sure that Brackes knows this, that Brackes, because Hermann Abs had been extensively involved in the Netherlands and had cooperated with one of the banks that expropriated the assets of Brackes' family. Right? So it's very personal for those two. But it, it plays out in interesting ways. Right, so Bracquez is steeped in the sort of early 20th century idealistic framing of arbitration, as arbitration as a sort of replacement for war or force. And as he views um, arbitration, he kind of imbues it with all that history. But abs too, right? So we have individuals get standing in international law, the sort of Lauterpacht idea, after World War II. They get it in human rights primarily. But investment law kind of comes out of the same intellectual milieu. And for Hermann Abs, it's the same idea as in human rights, but in reverse. Right? So this is a German investor who had worked, well, he thought he had worked very hard during World War II. His deal-making followed the advance of the German army into Czechoslovakia, into the Netherlands. He was very active in Switzerland and a lot of other places. And then after World War II ends... All of the property that Hermann Abbs had purchased or had made deals around, gets a lot of it gets expropriated. And German investors, after World War II, are either not compensated or they're compensated at a much lower rate than, say, American investors or others.
0: Because German investors weren't super popular in 1947.
3: Wasn't a great time to, to be a German investor. And so Hermann Abbs also, right, the rallying cry of human rights after World War II is never again. But Herman is also thinking never again, and that's why he calls his draft convention a Magna Carta. So he sees it very much in this, next time the property is expropriated, we want to ensure that there's international law to facilitate compensation, to facilitate dispute settlement.
0: This is such an astonishing <laughs> story. and it's, Is this part in your book as yes. well? Because this is uh, sort of a, a, a similar thing as the East-West Street story by Philippe Sands that we have talked about on this podcast before, and how Lemkin and Autopas sort of intersected in Lviv. This yeah. is sort of the same time in this like old world Europe post Second World War, uh, really when international law was was really as we know it was was being drafted and discussed. This is just a, a, another piece of that jigsaw puzzle.
3: Yeah. And again, because I'm not a lawyer, I had a little bit more leeway to really delve into some of these personalities, because I think they are fascinating. And Herman Abs is just incredible. Um, so there's, he's actually introduced in Time magazine in 1967 as, and this will be one of the last things, but it's suave, witty and self-assured. Abs was more than a banker. A confidant and consultant to monarchs and politicians, he became an unofficial ambassador to the world's financial center and an undisputed eminence grise of German business. So he recovers
0: after World War II. Yeah, they don't mention the Nuremberg trials in this Don Draper (laughs) description. Right, he is Don Draper in this description.
3: (laughs) So he's out. He's the person that the German government sends to the U.S. to ask for compensation or to ask for more compensation for the property that America had expropriated from Germany after World War II. And this is why the American government views the OECD draft as an attempt by Germans to get compensation for property seized in World War II. And it's one reason why America is so opposed to the OECD draft for so many years.
0: Yeah. So Interesting. Well, unless you have any other groundbreaking, you probably do, right? Okay, so let's have me just be an active moderator and say, no, we should shut this down because I think we're a little bit over half an hour now. Thank you so much. And where can people buy your book? That's finally out. I've been (laughs) waiting for years. (laughs)
3: Um, On the Oxford University Press website, it's called The Rise of Investor State Arbitration, Politics, Law, and Unintended Consequences. Uh, And if people have any questions, they can feel free to email me. And all of the underlying archival documents will be posted online. And some of them, I think, are relevant for advocacy.
0: (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Thank you so much, Taylor, for taking the time. So you are not in Stockholm, you are in Helsinki, but if I understood you correctly, you are spending... Um, your time equally divided between the Stockholm office and the Helsinki office of, of Hannes Snellman right?
2: Yeah that's the plan and so it depends a bit on the week uh, how many days I'm there so this week I'm going on our uh, annual ski trip with the Stockholm office so it'll just be Wednesday in the office and then Friday off to the Alps
0: Has your life changed dramatically since you recently became partner and congratulations by the way
2: well thank you um, I think it's a bit too early to tell I was doing the split already before so in that sense uh, not necessarily but uh, yes the world is bring on new work
0: <laughs> yeah of course
2: uh, but it's um, I think I'm still figuring it out so we'll see we,
0: we had this notion that we would go around the world in this uh, season of the podcast and talk to people from all over the world and I'm just starting to realize that helsinki isn't maybe that far away from stockholm it's a it's a, it's a modest start on this ambitious plan to take a 40-minute flight across the baltic sea to to the closest city there is basically from from our base in stockholm but uh, we're happy regardless to to have you on as a representative of, of the helsinki arbitration community could you maybe just uh, first tell us what your involvement is with Helsinki. I know you're based, as we said, partly in Helsinki and you are Finnish. Do you have any uh, official ties to, to an arbitration institution or, or are you primarily a practitioner in Helsinki?
2: So currently I don't have any official ties to the Finnish community other than uh, perhaps as a representative of Finland uh, on the ICC Commission uh, on Arbitration and ADR. But um, I do have sort of indirect ties in the sense that um, my colleague and uh, longtime boss, Amiga Savola, has been the chair of the uh, Finnish Arbitration Institute since 2013. And um, I worked quite a bit with him uh, on on issues related to the rule revision process uh, when uh, that took place a few years back. And then I am one of the founding members of the uh, Young Arbitration Club uh, here in Finland. And so I was heavily involved in the sort of younger generation um, arbitration conferences and uh, other events on this market. Uh, But that's something that I've passed on and I believe that it's important that the torch is carried on by by the next generation of young lawyers on the market.
0: It sounds like the perfect person for us to to talk to, given your background. Maybe we should. Yeah,
1: you've touched so many little little organizations and groups. It's going to be fun to hear about all of this. Yeah,
0: without also being a representative of the institutions, and you know, being on the payroll of someone who, who's paying you to to promote arbitration in, in your jurisdiction. <laughs> it's is all often the case for people who work for full time for, for institutions. I, I wanted first just to get the the elephant in the room out of the way. Since we're calling from Stockholm. Uh, what, what's the view of the relationship between the Stockholm arbitration market and the, the Helsinki arbitration market viewed from, from Finland?
2: I think it's a, it's a positive relation in the sense that, um, I mean, Stockholm is the obvious big international seat uh, that is known to both the client base as well as the practitioners on the market. And I think it's a definite upside that uh, Stockholm uh, and and sort of Sweden and Swedish law are well known in Finland um, and it gives sort of credibility to arbitration in general. Um, That doesn't mean at the same time that uh, there wouldn't be sort of a market to build um, for arbitration in Finland um, and not necessarily only national arbitration, but also international arbitration with Finland still having a slightly different um, maybe industry base than Sweden has. Um, What's the difference in
0: in the industry base?
2: I think, I mean, generally, uh, Sweden has probably a more varied industry base. I think there's a lot of similar industry in in both markets, Um, but there's a lot of sort of heavy engineering uh, companies in Finland. Um, And I think there's a sort of second generation uh, of Startups that, uh, especially in on the Finnish market, following sort of um, the engineers that have left Nokia and the gaming industry and that type of thing,
0: right, right,
2: uh, which is slightly different from you know what we see in Stockholm in terms of um, um, the industry market. So I do think that you know there there may be a potential ground for growth that would be slightly diverse from from what you have in Stockholm. And I mean, Stockholm has a long Standing basis as you know a place where you East meets West, um, but I don't see why Finland couldn't do that. But maybe with a slightly different focus.
0: Yeah, I've been thinking about that. I think most people who travel regularly started to figure out that that Finnair is becoming a, an airline to to count on now for for flights to to Asia. Uh, I've been connecting through Helsinki a few times going east. And it seems like this is part of a strategy on behalf of Finnair to become the the hub to Asia. Is that something that is like spilling over into the arbitration world as well, or is that maybe too too early to to draw any conclusions on that front?
2: Yeah, I think it's definitely one opportunity. And I think where we needed to start here on the Finnish market was to get our own act together first. And I think in terms of the arbitral institution and the um, the Finnish Arbitration Institute, which uses the uh, FAI. Um, and then I think they've done a great job. You now I think the rules are on an international standard. Uh, they have to be commended for some of the changes that were done. Um, so I think that that part is sort of there's an international board since the the rule uh, rules update in two, 2013. So I think on, on that level, we're good. And then I think the next thing that the market uh, needs to make happen is, is uh, the update of the Arbitration Act. Um, I think once those things are in place, then we can start working together with the industry in Finland and sort of turning this into more of a hub for for arbitration. And I think that there are good developments uh, maybe outside of the commercial arbitration sphere where we have um, quite a few prominent people doing sort of uh, peace work in Finland. And I think that that would be another basis that could be used in addition to sort of say, the Finnish industry focusing heavily on on Asia and, you know, having direct connections to, to places in Asia.
1: When you said that there was this revision in 2013 and that Finland needed to get their act together, would you say the revision was to get the rules in line with kind of the international best practices amongst institutions, or was there something innovative and unique that you could explain that was introduced into this revision?
2: I think it was very much a sort of uh, revision of the rules to make sure that they comply with the international standards. And so some of the provisions that were introduced at the time that we didn't have in the previous version of the rules were um, emergency arbitrator provisions, and and you know where those came from. Um, Consolidation and joined... Singapore. In terms of, you know... um, we see more and more multi-party and multi-contract situations, and so the rules need to cater for that. Um, the arbitrator appointments are confirmed by the FAI, so you get less of an issue with if you have an international party, what happens if you know it, it, it doesn't end up being a, an all-finished um, panel, for example. Um, then you had the introduction of the international board, which means that any international case uh, will be dealt by the international board, and so appointments in international cases will be made by the international board. Um, So there's a diversification of the pool of arbitrators that's taken place, and that's something that, you know, I see in practice. Uh, It's not only more diverse in terms of nationality, but it's more diverse in terms of, you know, male, female, uh, older, younger um, representatives of, of the arbitration community. Um, yeah, we've yeah. had
1: we've had two senior associates at my firm be appointed as arbitrators at the Finnish Institute, which I thought was really interesting and really great. They're very competent and excellent lawyers, so I was impressed that the Finnish Institute would kind of take that leap. That I don't think maybe the arbitration institute here in Stockholm would would take.
2: I I think it's it, you know if they've been good and strategic about making sure that, you know, the people who are appointed as arbitrators, and I know this from my own experience, it's not like the first cases that you get are going to be sort of, you know, um, uh, multi-million large cases, but they will make sure that they are sort of competent people who are very experienced in what they do, not necessarily just as sitting as arbitrators, but uh, you will get probably better quality judgments from somebody who's at the starting end of their arbitrator career, but still knows the substance inside out. Because also on the smaller cases, what you see is that you often get very inexperienced counsel. So it doesn't hurt that you get somebody who, you know, will be able to make good procedural decisions, even if the interest in the case might not be uh, that high. Um, and so I think they, they've they done a good job on, on that front. And then the other thing that I have to commend uh, the FAI for is, is that they've started to sort of publish anonymized excerpts of, of case law and not just procedural decisions, but also substantive law decisions. And that is definitely something that we've lacked here on the Finnish market because a lot of the cases, the key sort of commercial cases go to arbitration. And of course, you know, being part of a firm that is involved in in many of those cases, we have an understanding of, you know where the decisions are made and what type of decisions you get out of um, of arbitration and say shareholder disputes or you know post M&A or what have you. But in order for it, that knowledge to be on the market, as you would with court decisions, uh, somebody needs to do that work. And I think the FAI has been really good about that in the past three ways uh, and, and pushing out case law in, in, in my form, which is not necessarily always easy on the market the size of ours because it doesn't take uh, much to figure out sort of, you know, uh, who the potential parties were, who were counsel and so on and so forth. So it takes quite a bit of work uh, on, on the side of the FAI to get those out and so I think they've done a great job with with that. So I think there's generally, uh, I have no issue, for example, recommending the FII to foreign parties because I know exactly what's happening. Uh, And I know that the measures they're taken uh, are are good and, you know, um, at at par with with other organizations out there providing arbitration services.
0: Uh, On that Um, note, uh, with respect to to foreign uh, parties doing arbitration, can I ask you, As as an international lawyer, you have significant background and experience from from working in other jurisdictions, and then then you moved back to Helsinki. How how international is the arbitration world, and, and maybe perhaps specifically the arbitration community in Helsinki, do you think? This is a recurring theme that we've had many
2: discussions about on the podcast before. I think it's a good question, and I think that my answer is sort of twofold. Um, in my mind, I divide the markets into sort of international and then regionally international, um, and, and and sort of local. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is that you have the big hubs, say um, one in New York, Paris, um, you know, Stockholm, Singapore, that have truly international cases and have an international bar presence and have people from all over the world um, sort of handling cases both as counsel and arbitrators. And then I think you have um, institutes that do a great job on a regional level. Um, And I would say that uh, although the FAI is fully equipped to cater for the properly international cases, um, I think the majority of the cases that we see are still at this stage uh, more of the regional type. So you'll have uh, mostly, you know, one Finnish party or one Swedish party or one Russian party and then a party from somewhere else. But also, the Institute at the same time caters to the local audience, which means all the sort of, you know, finish-finish um, And a lot of the practicalities that they have in place, and I think this is the same for the SEC, serve both crowds, uh, which in a sense is a good thing because it also sort of, it increases the level of service that uh, the local crowd is getting because there is the international standard. And then the second part of the answer, I would say is that um, while maybe the generation before me, uh, there are few, you know a few very good and international pract- practitioners, and, and you know the people that spring to mind are say, Karita and Lindholm, who's currently the chair of the ICC Commission on arbitration, um, you know who have a properly international practice and and have been doing that for for many years. Then that's not me- those have been sort of the outliers of of their generation, and the local market has been more national in a sense. But I think that um, starting with my generation, and then there's uh, the younger crowd who are starting out now. I do think that the world will look slightly different. People study abroad, they work abroad. They they return for different reasons. We have currently practitioners on the Finnish market who happen to be married to Finnish people, and you know they've studied law somewhere else. And I do think that we're starting to see an internationalization there. uh, At the same time as we see sort of you know the legal counsel at the large companies here in Helsinki being from all over the world, and to me that is a welcome development. And I mean of course uh, (laughs) that's also something I wanted to do so. Uh, I'm not going to pretend that I
0: don't have a vested interest in, in you know, turning this to a more international yeah. yeah. Obviously, Helsinki is the, the capital of Finland. Uh, do you know anything about the situation in like, in Tampere or Turku? Or is it the, the Helsinki is basically the, the city in which you have international arbitrations? Do you know if there have been international cases seated outside well, of Helsinki? You
2: know- when I, uh, when I came back from abroad and I interviewed at a few firms, and I uh, I will not disclose at which firm I got the question, but uh, one of the interview questions was, so uh, how do you feel as a person from Turku moving to Helsinki? Um, and I thought it was a funny question at the time, because all of Finland looked uh, all the same from, from outside the boundaries of Finland. But when it comes to arbitration, then that's very much the divide. So there's Helsinki, uh, and I mean, uh, all the large law firms are in Helsinki. Um, all the work comes out of Helsinki. But if you don't see an arbitration clause in a contract, uh, it will be the district court of Helsinki. That's the sort of uh, forum for, for any sort of international or dispute with international ties. Um, and while, you know, Turku, for example, has um, an institute of sorts um most of the arbitration work uh, is done out of helsinki and and with ties in helsinki so i, I think in a country besides it makes sense but the focus is in in one city
0: yeah it makes what about sense, the language
1: so. of what about the language of finnish how prevalent do you think that plays i mean you were saying that there the firms are becoming a bit more open to international practitioners but do you think that there's a bit of red tape for people that don't speak Finnish, or do you think there's enough of a caseload that is international that people who exclusively speak English or English as their second language and then Finnish as their third um, that they could also work there?
2: I think that's an interesting question. Um, I think currently I know one person who's not, uh, you know, who does international arbitration who's not sort of um, or hasn't doesn't have finish as a first or second language. Um, I don't see why you couldn't do that, Um, you know, 10 years from now, because the majority of the contracts that go through my desk are all English language contracts. And what you see sort of, um, I remember when I first, came here six years ago. Uh, the first arbitration I was involved in was an arbitration between a, a Swedish party and an American party that both had Finnish counsel because it's subject to Finnish law. And while the agreement was in English, then um, I think it was either a counsel on the opposing side or the arbitrators that suggested that, you know why don't we just do this and finish because we're all Finnish in here. And I was like, wait a minute. Um, the contract in English, this turns on the interpretation of one word in that contract. It would feel quite awkward to do this in Finnish. I mean, let's forget the fact that I hadn't done anything in Finnish in seven years. So really <laughs> You're like, wait a I'm, second. <laughs> I'm not comfortable doing this in English. No, but it's not just that. But I think, I mean, uh, the majority of business today is done in English. The majority of the contracts done, uh, say, at our firm are in English. Um, and I, How are I the think, district
1: courts with that as well?
2: Um, the district courts, I think most judges by now, I mean, I was just in a large hearing. This was the Court of Appeal in Helsinki. Um, started in October and we finished a, a few weeks back. And uh, we, had, we had experts who gave evidence um, in English and while there were translations of their answers, all the judges clearly understood what they were saying, although the language was quite technical. So, right. it's, uh, But you will have, for official purposes, you'll still have to uh, have their answers translated into Finnish, and all the documentation has to be in either Finnish or Swedish, which is the other official language. I think one. This is one of the good questions that one will have to take into account if the Arbitration Act is updated, which is the goal of, of the arbitration community. Um, and so it's this-
0: it's pretty old, right? The Arbitration Act. I, I think it's similar to Sweden. It's it's not uh, based on it's the model, law, the but
2: it's a- uh, yeah. And then uh, you know it has the same sort of oddities in comparison to the model as, as Sweden does um and so uh, there is a push uh currently within the local arbitration community to have the arbitration act updated um and then to sort of bring it to uh the political agenda so that we can push through and there's going to be i mean the pushes for finland adopting the model law Uh, of course then there are the questions of you know what do we do with um, the set aside enforcement applications? Should they be concentrated into one instance? Um, you know, what instance should that be, and at what level? Should you have the right to appeal, and so on and so forth? Um, but I think the the strong push is, is for Finland to adopt the model law. Well. Is and there something? Finish... Sorry. Sorry, it's a very Finnish approach to things. That, you know, uh, why should we do something that's uh out of the ordinary uh and not just be recognized as as doing the consensus thing around the world um and i you know uh, i can see the advantages of that on the other hand when you think of the successful seats uh in europe uh you know they more or less all tend to have uh, their their own law which is true for sweden or the uk or france or switzerland for that matter
0: yeah that's right that's right but is 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 there anything this is the the curveball the dirty question is there <laughs> is there anything uh, that you are annoyed with or something that is that stands out as something that would ideally be reformed if you could choose, given that you are coming back with an international perspective back to Finland? this is uh the the skeleton and uh, the closet question
2: I think it you know um the one thing. Uh or maybe two, uh, one is that the act makes reference to, with regard to impartiality and independence um, it points back to the judicial code uh, and, and you know the the independence and impartiality of judges, which is just oh, really? a remnant, and in it should go uh, because that's also not how things are done in practice, but um, it, it, it's been there since, and so that, that's definitely one of the things that needs to go. Another one, um, I mean, we have the same oddity, if you like, on an international level as Sweden does with. Um, then the arbitral awards that would be null and void versus, you know, the grounds for set aside, um, and, and that's one that you keep explaining in, in these situations to clients. So um, I can also see how, how we would sort of bring those in line with the provisions in the model law. Um, and then, of course, uh, now apparently, at worst, you end up with three instances uh, with with any sort of application to the courts, and so that's um, that's a clear candidate also for you know dealing with it the way Sweden does or say Switzerland.
0: Yeah, get a one-stop shop for for challenge and set aside.
2: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Great. I think Brian, so those- do you have anything else, or are we slowly? Re- reaching our I just have a mark. more
1: personal que- I just have a more personal question please um what uh, what makes what makes your profile one that hops back and forth between Swedish Sweden and Finland is it just because there's bigger cases in Sweden so and because you've risen up in the ranks that you're now tapped to go to Sweden more or what's happening in Sweden that makes you come back and forth so often
2: um I think it's a question of personal choice in in the first place. Uh, I mean, uh, I wanted to come back as an international practitioner to Finland because I want to serve the clientele that we have here uh, from here and sort of have long-term relationships with with the clients and and help them out on that arena internationally. Um, But, of course, it's a limited number of of companies that do truly international business out of Finland, and so... um, You know, there's clearly also more of a hub for arbitration in in Stockholm. And I joined Hannes one back in the day because uh, we had offices both in Helsinki and Stockholm. And and combining both is sort of, for me, it's my dream job. Um, And so um, I I certainly want to keep it that way, although the travel sometimes gets to one. But uh, on the other hand, you know our uh, services so far keep improving, so I'm not complaining. <laughs> um, the other thing is, is sort of I think there's a lot of uh, advantages in seeing how both markets develop. because a lot of the legislation is the same, so whether it's contract interpretation or you know the Sales Act or the Arbitration Act, um, you know the Finnish courts are bound to look at what Sweden does. Uh, I'm not sure it goes the other way around, but you know at least we understand where where the laws come from. Um, it's not a bad place to be in the sense of when you need a non-Swedish uh, arbitrator in Sweden. Uh, you know, I, I speak the language, I've lived in the country, I, I get the culture. So there's uh, there's an interest for me in being present on the Stockholm market. And I've actually noticed that it also helps out with, with international clients or international co-counsel that, uh, you know, I'm not Swedish to them. Um, so they they get it that I'm slightly of an outsider, but on the other hand, uh, can translate the Swedish culture or the decisions to them in a way that maybe maybe makes sense to them. So that's at least hoping that uh, you know there's a, a market share there. But um, yeah, more of that I enjoy the you know marketing the Nordics. I think we do great work here in the Nordics, uh, and I think. That there's no reason that uh, there couldn't be more cross-border cooperation because I think we all all stand to benefit from that.
0: Amen. Preaching to the choir, here. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, you yeah. know. Well, thank uh, you. Thanks, guys, for um, running the um, the podcast. Uh, one of our, our our sort of junior associates or or associates came to me uh, maybe a month or two ago and I'll say, is this podcast any good? And I'm like, I'm so proud that he found this. Um And so, congrats on making it happen. uh Thanks for making the Nordics present also through your podcast.
0: Thank you. We are very big in Finland. Yes.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, as far as I can tell, you have no competition yet on, on this trend, so uh,
1: <laughs> Yeah, that's what we're working happy towards. Happy to market
2: you as well. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much Anna Maria for taking the time out of your busy practice and I hope to see you
1: soon. My
2: pleasure. Likewise. Thanks very much.
1: All right, thank you. Bye. Bye. Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> so You find out from your boss that you are going on a trip to meet a client or go to a hearing or take some witness examination prep.
0: Or go to a conference to to present your paper you co-wrote if you're not working for a law firm.
1: Right, or shadow-wrote if you're a junior lawyer. (laughs) And you're super excited, you book your tickets, and then you realize that the partner that you're going with wants to book it together. And why do they want to book it together? Because they want to fly together. and. My problem, Joel, is the following. When you're working next to someone, it's it's this artificial construction of closeness. It's the fact that you've spent so much time together that you have what you think is a level of intimacy, but then you realize the second you go and have a drink with your colleague on a Friday that you guys have nothing in common personally. So you are forced into this social experiment where you have work dynamics, you're under the magnifying glass of like work etiquette, yet you still have to be funny and charming and you have to avoid displaying your weird habits while traveling, you know, taking out hand sanitizer lotion because you're like completely disgusted by the seatbelt germs and all of these things that are happening at the same time. And if I had a choice between that and sitting on my own in row 45 watching netflix reading my bundles i i would have to choose the latter
0: this is so interesting because i've had similar discussions on other topics with people from other places than than my home country and i think maybe what you're saying and please second guess me if i'm if i'm wrong sort of departs from an assumption that you keep work and personal life separate that there's this like Chinese wall between your professional self and your personal self and when you travel you're sort of you're blurring that distinction a little bit right exactly and I don't really feel like that maybe it's because I have a less serious job than you do but I I haven't traveled that much with colleagues but it, it's happened from time to time and I've never thought of it as an issue because it's just the same thing as 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 always or as otherwise when you're in the office you just and a plane instead i mean you you would probably bring out your sanitizer at, at the office too no
1: yeah yeah i would i just i think that i don't want to be forced to do something i don't have to do so like work is you know i love my job but it's an obligation and you come here because you're paid for it if and you don't make money if you don't but i to like Isn't go, traveling
0: for uh, work also work though yeah Strictly speaking
1: yeah but uh, yes but again you're going through this like this dynamic that you have your boss there and you have an underling there and you have your equal there. And you're all like, you know, just what does the person and then we have, you know, each firm has their own weird constructions about how the junior, the most junior person has to pay for the taxis or the junior person has to organize the taxis or some firms have it where the most senior person pays because they need to Mm -hmm. show the client Mm -hmm. that they're the ones with the card. Um, It's all of these weird things. And it's just like, I just want to arrive on my own Enter into my hotel on my own. I want to read my bundles on my own because that's another thing. So I was in business class because, you know, that happens sometimes. And (laughs) it never happened to me. (laughs) And I got a little tap on my shoulder from a colleague who wanted to, you know, chit chat about the case. Granted, I mean, we had enough space to like that no one heard anything. But I was uh, to me, it was not the time or the place i you know i want to do things in my own rhythm when i'm flying because yeah, especially yeah, yeah. When, especially i hear when you're you. flying across the pond you don't want you know i some people like to eat and read i don't like to do that so why are you interrupting me during my meal when yeah i, and
0: I mean i guess this this goes both ways because or it should really because most people in this business are such frequent travelers that you develop your own rhythm and your own thing you want to yeah. do it your own way so when you have like four people at the same time, if, if each insists on doing it his or her own way, they're all going to collide into one giant uh, mess.
1: Yeah. And so after all this ranting, I have to tell you that I'm in the minority on this.
0: You mean people enjoy traveling with colleagues?
1: People enjoy it. They, they enjoy it so much. They want their taxi to swing by my place to pick me up to go to the airport.
0: <laughs> I'm... Having a hard time here, <laughs> it, it just feels really like a crime river kind of problem. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, your nice colleague wanted to pick you up outside your apartment to take you to the, to the airport to fly you to an interesting city on paid <laughs> work time. <laughs> and you prefer to do it on your own.
1: <laughs> Completely. Maybe I'm just an extreme introvert, but I'm social. I like to go out and have a, you know... Have a little happy, fun time with my colleagues.
0: But, yeah, but I get you. I'm the exact same way, actually, and I want to do it my way. But I maybe you do this more frequently than I do as well.
1: But see, you're always traveling as well, but you're always traveling on your own because you're just this independent contractor that kind of plugs into certain situations. Yeah,
0: uh, more or less. But for me, it happens, though more spontaneously so it's not it's not organized as it is when you're working for the same fur It's more like you know three people from the swedish arbitration community are all going to the same conference and we happen then of course to meet up at the airport right because we know each other and we're going the same way and then, then you end up talking and I, i've been more in those kinds of situations which, which is also uh, it has its own strange dynamic when you're not officially traveling together but there's this social expectation that you are still traveling together because you know right. each other have the same purpose
1: Oh, I hate those too. I
0: hate those two. Oh <laughs> and once God. I was going back to Sweden from an event in Europe with a few people, oh sorry, maybe I should turn off my phone. And we were of very different seniority, so two of the members of this uh, spontaneously created group uh, went to the lounge at the airport. Because they fly so much that they, of course, have. Oh, that's uh, hilarious! Well. so so two others, me included, we couldn't go to the lounge, so we hung out in the like general pop, <laughs> with with the rest of the uh, flying cattle, and <laughs> that was, was not a not an issue. But it's also I don't know how does how does it work when you're flying with a firm and it's like you're flying with a partner who only flies business and is, is you know a, a diamond member of, of the airline and you're not.
1: Oh, it's a a nice wave with you know a nice lounge sandwich in their mouth while they while you go row with the other slaves. <laughs> no, that, I mean there's no there's no problem in that regard. I just I I don't know what it is. I I don't know what it is. I'm a very social person, but this just really grinds my gears because okay, so the the big devil's advocate of this whole thing is that you should be working when you're flying for work, you should be working on your way there and on your way home. So there's really no there should be no problem to working, you know flying with someone from work because you're going to end up working the whole time um, and so that's that's the real expectation and that's why people like to fly together and you get to, you know, really maximize your time by talking about the case and reviewing a submission together or asking
0: questions. Oh, that's true. In this like isolated tiny little bubble right. where there's no cell phone reception and no other colleagues hanging around.
1: Exactly. So the only issue with me there is like, okay, so I have a window seat and I'm supposed to like prop my computer in this really awkward angle and type notes that you're now discussing into my ear that I don't have internet to like look something up or change. Okay. Did I download the right document? So I like to usually read when I'm on the plane. Yeah. And some people don't want to do that. And you know, so it's, I, I, ha- I really enjoy my autonomy when I'm planning my work and when I'm doing my work and um, some people just really like the collaborative effort.
0: But what happens then when you actually touch down and you're supposed to be in a hearing or at a conference and you have like, a, you know, three nights in a different city and you're staying two doors down. Yeah. At the same place. Are you mm-hmm. also expected to like, you know, after business hours to hang out and go to the hotel bar and talk about the day or like review yeah. stuff for the next day?
1: 24 hours a day you should be in like contact with each other. I mean, especially a hearing you're always just working. So you're always together. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, it's awkward because you're like, w- you're working in your bedroom basically with someone that you don't really know that well, uh, who's like 40 years, your senior. But uh, other than that, um,
0: but if Enter you're, if... the me too discussion. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but then if you are, let's say you're at a conference or something, and you have the conference, you know, the conference is not necessarily work. Okay, I have the night off. I don't really have something that I need to, need to do back at home. So, you know what? I actually know someone in Paris. I'm going to call them and meet them for dinner. That's technically bad form to some people. That's true.
0: That's true. I've been in that situation that other people did that on me. And I and I, I was like, yeah, that that makes sense. I would want to do that as well. But I was still a little bit pissed off because <laughs> there's this expectation. <laughs> I thought no, we were but... all hanging out, man. <laughs> no. Never be
1: that guy. So now, any colleague that I have will know that I just don't want to talk to them when we fly. But that's not the case. I'm I'm more than willing to talk to my colleagues when we fly. But I yeah, just, just uh,
0: on your own terms.
1: Yeah, I like to maximize my time, and I like to take advantage of certain situations. Like you know, if I'm abroad and I haven't seen someone in a while, I'd love to catch them for coffee before the conference. Or I'd love to lunch with someone from another firm that I want to go talk to and have private conversations with. So I don't know, Um, to be be continued on that front.
0: Does it feel good to have this uh, RU system?
1: Yeah, because I've been talking to this to nobody, except the person next to me on the plane, because I booked a whole separate row, um, and they don't want to listen to me, so thanks for listening. We have
0: to watch ourselves, though, so that we don't turn happy fun time into ranting time, when <laughs> either one of us is just talking about something that's been annoying. I find now. that extremely
1: fun. Uh, no, you're right. But I think it's a, I think it's a ha- a happy topic that has to do with arbitration, which is we travel all the time. Yeah, true, true. All right, so... Until then, see you in the skies.
0: Yes, and uh, see you also on next Tuesday on the third episode of the second season of The Arbitration Station.
1: You got it right.